Desert Springs Presbyterian, it's good to be with you and worshiping in person. The Since February, the first service I attended in person was a parking lot service where everybody essentially did the uh, like the tailgate service, and that was in Colorado. Uh, and the sun beat down on you, even though it's not as hot as here, uh, it was still a little warm, and this is preferred. So I'm enjoying this, and I'm glad to be with you to see believers in person. This morning, I'm going to be bringing God's word to you from Jonah. We're going to be looking at Jonah, the end of chapter 1, and we'll read the entirety of chapter 2. And since I'm not preaching four sermons for you, I just picked one, and this is the one I wanted to preach. If you know the story of Jonah, Jonah first gets a call from God that the evil from a great city of Nineveh had come before him, and he decided he's going to send his prophet Jonah to that city to preach against it, to preach repentance. And Jonah, being the wonderful prophet of God that he was, decided to go the opposite direction and not follow what God had commanded him. And we know that a storm came, and in that storm it was revealed that he was the cause of that storm, and all the sailors and all their lives were in danger, and he was thrown overboard. And so we will pick up the story at that point. If you... um, have a Bible, you can turn there. I'm sure the words will be on the screen for you and you can follow along. And I will uh, read, beginning uh, Jonah 1, 17 through 2, the end of the chapter. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple." The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head, the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope, of, instead, of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let us pray together. Lord and Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit and Jesus, triune God, we pray that the Spirit would be here with us this morning. Lord, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be here to help us to understand this passage. Holy Spirit, be here that you would be dwelling within these walls, that you would be within our hearts, that you would help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see how great and glorious you are. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. 
So in a passage like this, clearly the answer we need to address first is the fish, right? We need to know how exactly big was this fish. What kind of fish was this in the Mediterranean? Maybe we should go back to ancient texts and ancient accounts and see what kind of fish lived in the Mediterranean Sea. Maybe we should see the modern ones. Maybe it wasn't a fish. Maybe it was a whale. We don't know. Questions like these obviously can swirl around our head and keep people busy for numerous times, as if if we can unlock what type of fish this was, then it might be believable and or we'll have a better understanding of this passage. But I hope you know, I'm joking, I'm not going to talk about the fish. I do not intend to tell you what type of fish. I know very little about fish. The biggest fish I've caught is about that big, and so I'm not an expert on this. Then again, that's not exactly what the passage is even concerned about either. The type of fish it was is not the point. The question that we're supposed to ask in this passage is not what this fish was. The question is, why on earth would God even save Jonah? If you look at Jonah's track record, he's pretty bad job performance. And if you're the God of all creation, you'd think, well, get another prophet, someone who's willing, someone who will go. In this book of Jonah, there's four movements, which are, I think, properly delineated in four chapters. And we're in the second movement here. The second movement, everything narrows in. In the first chapter, everything is wide open. You can imagine Jonah and the city where he's from. He's in the land of Israel, not far from the temple of God, where God's spirit dwelled there. And through the intercession of the Levitical priests, there was a communion with God that should be happening. And God calls him to a faraway land of Nineveh to take up and travel. But Jonah has a different in mind. He wants to go to Tarsus, the other end of the world. And so as chapter 1 is this big, open-ended world, chapter 2 takes us very narrowly pressed in with water entirely surrounding you and then in the belly of a stinking, smelling, rotting that you just imagine all of those experiences, what it might be to be inside the actual belly of a fish. His senses are dampened. There's no light. He's in a crammed space. There's no air. You know, I don't imagine him like the Disney movie Pinocchio making a campfire and camping out. He wasn't just an enjoyable, you know, retreat for three days. That's not what was going on. What's going on in this passage is that Jonah has made an utter fool of himself. He's brought wreck to his life. He almost brought wreck to the numerous sailors on that boat who, for all extensive purposes in that moment, were innocent of judgment though I don't mean eternally. What we see is that God calls Jonah to life, even to the place where his foolish decisions brought him. Fool or no fool, God hears him. Fool or not, God saves Jonah. Because God hears the prayers of all of those who are in need. He hears all the prayers of those who are in need who cry out to them, and God comes and he rescues them. Even if the pain that you're in is the result of your own foolish and disobedient actions. And I think it's interesting that we that Jonah only in this situation when he's incredibly cornered there's no other place for him to turn that's when he prays 
to God. And that, I think, we're very much like Jonah. That only when our lives seem to become to that point of utter despair, when it looks like we've ruined our life, that what the things we've set up and that we hope and our wishes for life are falling apart before us, then we're willing to admit that we do not know what to do and we need God. This passage is a reminder for us to cry out to God and God will respond. This story is very dramatic. I mean, think about Jonah. Not only does God speak to him, he goes the other direction. I mean, that's, that's, that's dramatic in itself. And then this wild storm comes. So much so, the most experienced sailors in the world are freaking out. So much so, they're like, well, maybe our gods aren't the real God. Maybe we should cry out to another God. Who's, who's this guy? Jonah's thrown into the sea, and a swish of fish comes and swallows him and then vomits him out. This is very dramatic stuff. Hollywood uh, special effects would not do it justice. It's a dramatic story because God's grace is dramatic. God's grace is not just a very simple thing. It is dramatic. It's a complete reversal, and that's how God meets us. So I want to look at the drama of God's grace under three headings. If uh, you happen to want to take notes, these are the three major points I will run through. First, running from God. Second, captured by God. And third, sent for God. So that's first, running from God. Second, captured by God. And third, sent for God. So running from God. Jonah's trying to do the impossible. He's trying to run from God. He's trying to get out of his presence. He's trying to to go somewhere else. God gave him a call that he didn't want to do, and he goes. And you imagine God is, is looking at what Jonah's doing, and he's just, Jonah, where are you going? You know, like, from God's perspective, like, his movements that seem maybe so vast on his scale are very little. Because God, when God has a plan, it can't be stopped. When God, in his sovereign will, has ordained something to happen, and he intends for it to happen... A man who can be swallowed by a fish is not going to thwart God's plan. God's plans are secure. I can make a plan, and my plans can fail. I can make a plan to go hiking up a mountain, and there's all kinds of things that could keep me from doing that. I could lose one of my shoes by misplacing it under the bed. I could get a flat tire on my bike or my car. I could pull out my phone and look on things on Amazon for an hour and just completely forget to do it. All kinds of things can prevent me from achieving the plans that I might set out to do, but God is not like that, and his plans are not like that. God's plans are secure, set before the foundation of the world, but God's plans are also good. What was Jonah's plan? His plan was to save himself. His plan was to get out of Dodge and have nothing to do with the Ninevites, those people who didn't eat the same food as him, who didn't talk like him, who didn't dress or look like him. And as far as they knew, he had a completely different culture and he had won nothing to do with him. In fact, if you look in historical context, they were the enemies. They were a very direct threat to the people of Israel. He wanted nothing to do with him. And he was willing to say, I will save myself and I'm willing to let that whole city be condemned. But that's Jonah's plan. God's plan is that these people would be able to see their own foolishness. That is, the evil came up before God 
and he wants them to see their own evil. He's sending a prophet, someone close to the temple, close to the presence of God, with God's revealed will, to tell them, you are living for your own glory, for your own pleasure, for your own purposes, and you are rebelling against the Creator. What Jonah has to come to find is that he's in the same desperate position as these people who know nothing of the true worship of God. Jonah was no different than the Ninevites he was sent to preach to. He fled from God. He fled from his presence. He fled from walking in obedience with him. And in doing so, he fled from the grace of the salvation that God was extending out to those he loves. When he turns back, he turns his back on God's blessings. Consider what it takes for Jonah to realize this. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Jonah as he's sinking down into the water right before that fish got him? Sebastian Junger wrote a book, The Perfect Storm, a true story of men against the sea. And in this, he writes, as referring to drowning, the instinct not to breathe underwater is so strong that it overcomes the agony of running out of air. No matter how desperate the drowning person is, he doesn't inhale until he's on the verge of losing consciousness. At that moment, there's so much carbon dioxide in the blood and so little oxygen that chemical sensors in the brain trigger an involuntary breath, whether it's un- he's underwater or not. And that's called the breakpoint. Laboratory experiments have shown the breakpoint comes after 87 seconds. It was just a little over a minute, not quite a minute and a half. It's sort of a neurological optimism, as if the body were saying, holding our breath is killing us, and breathing in might not kill us, so we might as well breathe in. And when the first involuntary breath occurs, most people are still conscious, which is unfortunate, because the only thing more unpleasant than running out of air is breathing in water. At this point, the person goes from voluntary to involuntary apnea, and the drowning begins in earnest. How does Jonah express this? When my life was fainting away, verse 7. When my life was fainting away, Jonah was right at, we don't know how long he was under there, but we know he had a consciousness that he, it was about done for him. It was about over. It took this dramatic experience for Jonah to come to this, this place of repentance, to see that his fleeing from God was a fleeing of his, from his grace. It took this for him to see that his foolishness was only bringing him just about to the bottom of the ocean. But what did God do? He sent a fish. What's interesting is, God sent the fish. He appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. God had this here already in place. I'm swallowing Jonah up, and I'm rescuing this guy. It's after the fact of the rescue. And even Jonah, as he's in this fish, he, 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 I don't think he realizes what God is doing. He doesn't know if he's going to be vomited out. He doesn't know if this fish is just going to digest him. But he knows that in this moment, There's some level where God has done something and he's going to cry out to him. And he cries out. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. From the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard me. Now for any of you who 
aren't sure what that, that word Sheol means. It's the place of the dead that the Hebrews understood. They did not have as um, built out of a theology of heaven and hell as we do that is filled out for us in other parts of Scripture. But Jonah's journey was to flee from God, and it seems as if God gave him a little taste of what it's like to flee from him. What is it like to flee from my presence? And yet he rescues him in that moment. And what's interesting is this whole prayer that we see is a weaving together of various psalms into one prayer. So we know Jonah, he was steeped in God's word. He understood it. He had the testimony of the people. Verse 2, For you cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. So we know he's not treading water and a, and a fish gulps him up out of the top and brings him down. He's sinking, and he's sinking fast. All your waves and your billows passed over me. This is God's sea that he sent. And he says, I am driven away from your sight. The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. You imagine he's at the farthest depths when already like the seaweed and everything is, is, is touching him. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He saw his utter powerlessness, that he had no power to reverse the situation he was put in and that he put himself into. You know, running from God is something we all try to do. When the plan that God has for our life is not agreeable for us and we make steps and actions against it, we run from God. And really, this is no different what humanity has been doing for all of creation since the fall. This is what Adam and Eve done. They ran and they hid from God when he came and walked in the garden after they had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We run from him out of guilt and shame and in rebellion. But what we need most from God is his grace. And where we get his grace, we get it from his presence. We get it when he is near to us, and we should run to it, but instead we run away. So my question is, how have we been running from God's presence? How have we been running from his grace? What, how do you avoid being near to God? Where do you hide? Because you don't just need to hide in a room or in a boat. You can hide in your heart. You can hide in your mind. You can block things off. You can, and you might not block your whole life off. You might be very faithful in attendance to things and even, and even spiritual disciplines like prayer, and, and you might even do the same with Scripture reading. But you block off something, and, and you say, that is too sensitive and vulnerable. I'm not giving that to God. I'm not throwing that before him. I'm holding that to myself, and in that, there is a running. But we don't need to run in that rebellious way. In that way, we can run by distraction. Americans, on average, have 11 hours of consuming media a day, which is tremendous. 11 hours, wow. And there's studies that have shown that there's a connection between the heightened anxiety and, and, and connection with social media and just social not, not real social interaction, but through a medium that heightens our anxiety. Numer and I won't go into all the things that go in there, but it, it drives up this sense of like we're missing out and we're not enough and we're insufficient. 
which is we know so contra to what God declares to us in the gospel that my grace is enough, that you, I have made you enough, that I love you, that you are my son and my daughter. He wishes for us to dwell in peace and rest in that. If we're far from God's presence, we're far from his grace, and if we're far from his grace, we're far from his heart. We see that was Jonah's case, because God's heart was to go and proclaim to the Ninevites that they would see their evil and repent. And Jonah's heart was 180 degrees away from that. But God restores his grace to us by bringing us back into his presence. That is what we see. When we run, he goes and gets us. He fetches us out of the water. Maybe you're here thinking, I have made a wreck of my life. I'm not going to admit it to the people around me. I might not admit it to my elders or my parents or whoever else, but I've made a wreck of my life. Maybe that is something you can feel. Maybe there's a relationship that is really biting you. Maybe there's a mistake in your past that you're looking to and you're thinking it's setting you up for failure for the rest of your life. Whatever it is, you might be thinking, if I sin again and I fall back into this habitual sin, God's eventually going to change his mind about me and be done with me. To you and each of every one of you, I want you to know God only saves those who have made a wreck of their life. Those are the only people God saves. God, he's the great physician who came to sick, to heal the sick and save the lost. He didn't come to those who were well, who did not need saving. God saves his prophet Jonah, the least deserving person to be saved. He knows he messed up and he cries out to God. We can cry out to this same God. So Jonah's story tells us that God's heart is to bring us back into his presence. And so I'm going to look at our second point captured by God. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. He didn't know. He, Jonah didn't know when he was thinking that God was going to send this fish to get him, but he did. We know that Jonah is saved by God in this remarkable way, and we see his response in this working through, how am, I, how am I experiencing God's grace in this moment? He's working through the fact that God has saved him. And you can see this, this, this sense also in Jonah where God is, God is interacting with him in this way. Jonah ran from him, and then he appoints this fish, and there's no other thing that Jonah can do. Right? Jonah's not going to outswim a fish. He's not going to outbreathe the fish underwater. He's doing exactly what God wants him to do. God captured Jonah to bring him where he needed to be. And God captures us in the same way. He doesn't capture us perhaps as dramatically as being swallowed by a fish, but he's going to capture us, and he's going to capture you, and he's going to bring you into his presence. His grace is that he would take you there. And so we look at the story of Jonah. We don't want to think of it as the story of Jonah and the whale, like a you know, a children's book might portray it. It's better to say Jonah's calloused heart and God's overflowing grace because God captures Jonah when he was fleeing and brings him back. But to be in God's presence, what is that? To be in God's presence is to be in relationship with him. It's to, to know in your heart that God's love for you is so overflowing. It's to know the weakness of your body, the weakness of even your resilience to resist sin, to resist temptation, 
To be in God's presence is to know that in spite of all that, God delights in you, that God enjoys you, that God cherishes you, that he, he chose you and wants to be with you. It's a deep peace that is far better than just a relaxation technique. It's the assurance that just rushes over us. It's God's delight in us. It's revitalizing spirit to dwell in us. That when we don't even want to interact or talk with people, we know that he is near to us. It's, it's this experience of life by the power of his grace. They know that you have everything you have is an unmerited gift. That everything he's given to you is because he loves you. And yes, we hold that intention with that quote that John Calvin had, which um, I'm going to paraphrase it, but essentially even all the sorrow we have, we, can, we know it is good because it came from God, and so we can submit to it. And yes, we hold these things in intention, but God has that powerful, marvelous way to use good, bad things for good. And God's presence is transformative. It changes our desires, it changes our character, and it changes our behavior. And we get the first glimpse in this prayer that this is working on Jonah. Right? Jonah was no longer the guy who's, God says one thing, I'm doing the other. He's thankful. He's praising God. He's saying, wow, look at all these things you did for me. But we also know that Jonah's, the transformation of Jonah is not complete. If you read to the end of the book, we know chapter 3, Jonah does go and he preaches like he should. But in chapter 4, he goes up to the mountainside and he's waiting for the fireworks. He said, I did my job. I prayed my prayer. Send the hellfire, God. I'm waiting. That's not what God does. Jonah has yet to really experience the transforming power and the vastness of God's grace because he was willing to see it apply to himself. He's willing to say, I love the fact that God's grace has come to me and I'm thankful to God. But he had yet to capture that vision that God's grace was overflowing to those very different than him. Because Jonah didn't just need three days and three nights and a fish. He needed a savior that spent three days and three nights in a tomb dug out in the ground. Jonah needed a savior. Jonah needed himself to be transformed. He needed the presence of God, not just to, to be called to him, but to be brought into him by the power of the Spirit. He needed the Holy Spirit in him to be transformed. Because the way God transforms us is by the power of his blood and by the presence of his Spirit. That we're not transformed except by the blood of Jesus Christ poured over us, drenched in his blood, drenched in his righteousness, cleansed from all of our unrighteousness. He had to become one of us, joined with us, with a body that you can touch, that could get sick, that could get viruses, that would need a face mask, even now like we need a face mask to prevent himself from getting COVID-19. He was susceptible to these things. But we know that we would not run to God simply at an invitation because in Jesus' parable of the wedding feast, a great feast, come, one and all. No, I'm not going to come. I got cows. People reject it. And so he had to send his servants to go out into the fields again to the, to the poor and compel them to come in. God's grace is dramatic, and God's grace is something that pursues us, and it captures us. That is God's love. His redemption plan is to bring us back into his presence, to back into that place of peace. 
God's grace is a pursuing grace. It's a, it's a relentless grace. It never gives up. It's always and forever. It's a grace that's greater than our sin. It's greater than our weakness. It's greater than our failures. It's greater than the pits we dig for ourselves in life. It's greater because Jesus' blood is more powerful. That's what we need. After uniting us in his body Jesus that Jesus let to be broken upon the cross, he was shunned by God. He's, he suffered the wrath of God. He suffered the wrath that Jonah deserved. He suffered the wrath that the Ninevites deserved. He suffered the wrath that you and I deserve. And he did it that we would be in his presence, that we would be welcome to be with him, that he would extend that loving embrace to us. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, we have access to God's presence because Jesus was excluded from God's presence. Because he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because he was shunned from God's presence at the cross, we can be brought near to it. No person has ever experienced the absence of God's, of God's loving delight upon them the way Jesus did. Anybody on this earth, no matter how poor our life is, how, how painful it is, no matter what tragedy we go through, and that's not to belittle any of the heartbreak that some of us go through, that we see others go through, if we have air to breathe, if we have water to drink, we are experiencing God's grace, his common grace on all creation. If our first inclination, though, is to try to make our own life, to follow our own plan, to follow our own advice, our second inclination when we encounter God is to use God to help us achieve our first desire. And this can be, this is a twisting of what God would want if we do this. It's using religious duty as a thing to extract from God the things we wanted to begin with before God. It's using him as a tool, a a get-out-of-free-jail card to live the life we always wanted. And if we do this, we are not experiencing the grace of God. We're trying to exploit it. But we we can't possibly offer anything to God. There's nothing we can offer to God that he would give us payment in return. But Jonah, Jonah had nothing to go to bargain with God with as he was sinking. And we're in that same situation. What Jonah needed was to be captured by God. And we need the same thing. We can't capture him, but we need to be captured by him. And it's God's grace that he captures us. But he doesn't capture us like a prisoner or a or a a violent arrest, or something like that. He captures us with gentleness and tenderness. He captures us like a shepherd finding the lost sheep. Capturing God, if we want to capture God, it's trying to sprinkle religion in our life just to make ourselves feel better. Being captured by God is being transformed by his forgiveness. And verse 9 says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. The main actor in this, even though the book is called Jonah, the main actor in this, as it is in all scripture, is God. God is the one who acts first, and he acts on our behalf for our best interest. Those who are captured by God are brought into his presence. They experience the transforming power that he gives us. And so I'm going to conclude here with our third point, sent for God. 
And this is really kind of where the rest of the book of Jonah goes. And you can read it if you like at home. If we're far from God's presence, we're far from his grace. And if we're far from his grace, we're far from his heart. But God gives us his grace by bringing us back into his presence. And bringing us back into his presence, he intends to transform our hearts that we would be about the same thing he is about. Before Jonah could become an agent of God's grace, he had to experience God's grace for himself. It had to be real to him. And it's no different for us. If we're going to be obedient to the Great Commission, to go into all the world and make disciples, right, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Jesus had commanded, if we're going to do that, we're only going to do it if we have been transformed and, 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 and really know in experience God's grace for ourselves. We too must experience this. And God's going to call us to people who are very different than ourselves. He's going to call us to people who we might not want as our neighbor. He's going to call us to people, to, to that person you might work with. And if, we all, if any of us go back to work with other people where we have to interact with them more closely again, the annoying things they do or their personality that's going to start to grate on you more. God calls us to love our enemies. We don't know who he has ordained from eternity past to be your brother or your sister and to be an agent of grace. We need to experience it. But salvation belongs to God. That's a summary of all scripture. We must first experience the drama of God's grace in us before we can communicate the beauty of grace to them. Let us pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, I pray that we would, we would understand your grace, that we would have an experience of it, and that, Lord, if we have experienced it, Lord, I pray, I pray, Lord, that you help us recall it. That, Lord, daily we would live by your grace, we live by your presence, we live by the transforming power of your Spirit. Lord, that, that as we even experience forgiveness today, that, Lord, we would, we would desire to, to show forgiveness and love to those, Lord, we find difficult to love, those different from ourselves. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would, as you rescue Jonah, rescue us, rescue our loved ones who are far from you, who are running from you. And Lord, if we are right now crying out silently to you, Lord, I pray that you would help us to experience your grace, experience your forgiveness, experience your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.